Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. I'm glad you could attend. Come inside. Come inside. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 10 of Let's Talk Hemp in the 422. I'm your co-host, Morris Beagle, hanging out with my partner in hemp spirit, Rick Trojan. And here at the 422, every day is Earth Day. Today's guest is Matt Harmon, real estate developer turned hemp documentary film producer, who will discuss with us his journey learning about the cannabis plant. These last few months have been nuts for both Rick and I. I just got back from Expo West in Anaheim, and Rick just returned from Columbia, which... Let's hear a little bit more about that. What up, Rick? Hey, brother. Episode 10. Los Dios. We were supposed to do the entry, the intro in Spanish, but I guess next time. So that's good. I can, I can get more practice because I think I need it. But, man, Colombia was is incredible. I truly took the hemp road trip all over that country, 2,800, uh, almost 2,900 kilometers in seven days, uh, which is an average of 250 miles a day. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the car and buses going all over the country in road trip style. We had a car break down in the middle of the Colombian jungle, which was wild in the middle of the night. But uh, I got to visit Cartagena, Monteria, Medellin, Cali, Bogota. Uh, even got to teach a seminar to some business folks and some investors in, uh, in some broken Spanish. So definitely an opportunity for improvement, learning, uh, learning Spanish a little bit better. But a couple of takeaways, man. I, uh, Colombia is absolutely gorgeous, and, and it's a huge country and very, very mountainous. But their food is almost all organic. I don't think I ate anything out of a box or a bag at all the whole week. They cultivate, like down in the south in the gorilla territory, they cultivate cocoa, cannabis, uh, cafe, uh, even hemp. I saw a 14-foot-tall, one-and-a-half-inch diameter hemp plant in the middle of the jungle. Uh, and in the middle of the jungle, they just carved out like a soccer field, too, which was super cool. But, yeah, the natives up there, they they, they speak Nam, Mistoc, some other languages before Spanish. So this two-year-old knew three languages, uh, including Spanish, uh, when I was up there. I mean, the area is just not traversable. It's so steep. It's very mountainous. So uh, the Spaniards could never conquer it. The current government can't conquer it. The gorillas kind of come in and take the cultivation from the Indians and give them some money. But it's a, it's an amazing place. The people are all happy. The food is absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, I definitely recommend getting out there and, and, and uh, touring the, the country if you get a chance. Well, I look forward to coming out there and checking it out with you here in the next, well, hopefully this year, but if not in 2019, I know that there's been a lot of interest in the cannabis market and the hemp market had several people reaching out to me that have, you know, obviously reached out to you and you went and, and did the first trip. So I'm glad that you could do that and check out everything that's going on out there. And you got a two-year-old that can speak multiple languages? Yeah, man, she's speaking. And I didn't, you know, when I was up there, we were talking with some of the, the they call them the, the Indios, the locals. Um, and one of them feeds, he has a fish farm that he feeds from, like, the mountain stream. And his, he was speaking to one of his cultivators in a, in a language called Nam. And then the other guy was speaking in a language called Mishok, which are two local, like, essentially mountain languages. That, that are nothing like Spanish, obviously. They developed years before colonialization even attempted. And uh, they teach these kids, they teach these kids those two languages right off the bat. And they also teach them Spanish, but they also have this place, like I went to in Poland, the, the Medicinal Herbs and Plant Society. They have that, and they teach the kids how to use the earth and the plants that are around in the region to cure whatever ailment comes up, you know, whether it's sore throat or whether it's this side or the other. I mean, they have plants for all of it. And they've been doing extractions with it for literally thousands of years. I mean, it's super – these fish are fed quinoa, medicinal herbs. I mean, the, I'm not a huge fish person, and I ate the whole thing. I bones – like, I chowed it. It was so good. 
I mean, it was absolutely amazing. It was like bright purple or bright um, orange. You can see a picture of it. I'll put it up on the road, the hemp road trip uh, Instagram. But it was, dude, it was amazing. I chowed the whole thing. Like, it was awesome. So kids get to learn about plant medicine and that food is actually medicine right from the get-go. That's what they are taught. Correct. In fact, they feed their food medicine. That's how much they're, that's how in the system, (laughs) they're feeding their fish the medicine that they need to take so that they get that medicine when they have their breakfast or dinner. I had fish for breakfast on rice and eggs. It was wild, but it was delicious. And the eggs, dude, the eggs have flavor. Like, I don't like eggs here. They're disgusting because they're all, they don't have flavor. That there, they tasted like eggs. Like, it was awesome. Well, did, uh, munching on those cocoa leaves have anything to do with that? Uh, possibly. But if you notice, if you notice in the, uh, the feeds, I'm like, I've been up for 67 hours. I've been up for 48. I've been up for 85 hours in the same little thing. So it was amazing because those, those, that region of the world is so beautiful and so green and the, the ground, when you walk on it, is super, like, spongy and because it's so filled with nutrients and organic matter. I mean, the jungle, if you leave things alone, the jungle will take over that area in, like, you know, a 100 years or so and pretty much destroy everything. I mean, it just overgrows everything. It's so amazing. So I'm That's Mother Earth. It. it is. It's Mother Earth, dude. And I was bending the knee. I was on the floor. I was showering in mountain fresh, like, runoff water in the dirt. Like, it was really cool, buddy. It, like, was really, it, like brought me back to being in touch with nature and, and Mother Earth and, and all that we need she provides. And it was a cool, a cool return to that perspective, if that makes sense. It does make sense because, truly, every day is Earth Day here at the 422. And you got to experience yeah. Earth Day every day when you were in Colombia. Dude, I was 422 in it on... 301, 302, 305. I was 422 in the whole thing. It was awesome. Well, Columbia is definitely on the list. I'm glad that you could go there and plant the flag. Moving on, though, I guess uh, you had sent out some kind of an inquiry to the DEA. Let's jump into that because we were talking about this before we hopped on, and you got this uh, interesting response of a couple hundred pages. So just share a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, we did the Hemp Road Trip, did our documentary uh, about a year or so ago. We started getting into it, and we wrote to the DEA for their perspective on the statement of principle that had just come out. We got no response uh, from them other than, you know, here's the statement of principle. Um, we wrote to them again, um, writing the, the Hemp Roadmap book, um, which will be coming out uh, in NOCO, at least a couple sample chapters. And the DEA actually responded. And we will have that in the book uh, when it comes out later this year. But we, they responded with a 2017 National Drug Threat Assessment book. Um, Well, like you said, about 180 pages put out by the Department of Justice and the DEA in October of uh, last year, 2017. And it covers what the country, well, not the country, what these offices believe uh, are the largest threats to our country as far as a drug standpoint. All the drugs, you know, Schedule One drugs that have no medical value and are highly addictive, somehow cannabis is in that section, to Drugs that do have some medical value uh, and are not as addictive like cocaine and heroin, right? So some things that were I thought, interesting, 63% of the deaths that occurred were opioid-related. Um, they had in every section, in the meth section, the heroin section, cocaine, uh, controlled prescription section, every one of those sections had a chart that showed the deaths, uh, deaths as a result of that drug. 
And those deaths since 2005, the chart would show a consistent increase in the amount of deaths related to cocaine, heroin, meth, each, each, each respective drug category. But, of course, when they got to the marijuana section, they uh, couldn't, they didn't have a chart on deaths over time because that chart would be zero. It would be flatline, uh, which would dispel the fear from this plant. They also had a chart which was interesting. Usually they do drug assessments of, you know, children under 18 and over 18. But this was the percent of people over the age of 12 that use marijuana, right, over time. And it went from 6% in 2005 to 8.3% in 2015. Um, so a jump of two, but it was a, it was a weird, it was a weird chart. But at any rate, they did also say that CBD, because it came from the flower of the plant, is a controlled substance, and the, the flower is the controlled substance, not THC. And so anything that comes from that flower then would be uh, a controlled substance. So they actually explicitly put that out uh, in the assessment that is going out to law enforcement. Now I'm realizing why law enforcement is so uh, misguided because this information is crazy inaccurate and how they're portraying it is also inaccurate and I would say false advertising, um, which actually might be an angle. And uh, so, hey, wait, so how can how can you say that the flower of the cannabis plant is a controlled substance? Because it does not say that in the Controlled Substances Act. It only calls out THC. It doesn't call out the cannabis flower and all of its constituents. It does not well, do I, that. I think, I think they're basing that on the original HIA versus DEA lawsuit in 2001 um, that indicated that the stock, the stems, the roots, and the non-viable seeds have never been a controlled substance and don't fall within the Controlled Substances Act and therefore naturally occurring THC is not a controlled substance that they have in hemp seed oil and such. Um, that I think that case is what I believe is, is, make, is, 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 is driving their stand now as the flower itself is the controlled substance, when really it's just the THC. Well, just hopefully we can put an end to this. Yeah, hopefully we can put an end to this in the next couple of years. You know, the DEA is absolutely the worst agency that we've got in the United States, how we fund this thing, how we allow it to continue on. It's truly a domestic terrorist organization. And not far behind is the FDA. These things, these agencies are not out to protect our public health. They're out to protect corporate interests and to take away our freedom of being able to utilize plants as medicines. I mean, how you can outlaw plants like they try to do is, it's absurd. Well, here's what here's what I think, and this is what I'm going to go around the country saying this year because this is uh, the opioid crisis is at an all-time high. Everyone recognizes that. I think more people recognize that than recognize climate change, which is insane, right? So <laughs> we, can, we can agree on the opioid crisis more than we can that we're destroying our our climate, right? But in any event, the the way that they the way the system has decided to fight this epidemic is to give police and hospitals a drug. Right? So they have to buy more chemicals so that this patient, right, this revenue-generating patient that's buying this, these drugs, this revenue-generating patient doesn't die. They give them the drugs just to keep them alive, right, but not to, but not to fix the problem, not to solve the problem long-term. They just keep them alive so they can get back on the street, buy more drugs until finally they do die. That, the way they're handling it is with more drugs. That is the dumbest 
dumbest, like the fact that that's even allowed to happen should be illegal. They're just keeping him alive so they can spend more money on more prescriptions. That's so, we need to say that because people need to see it for what it is. And that's literally what it is. They're just keeping them alive. That's their treatment. Keep the heart beating and keep the wallet open. That's the treatment. That's disgusting, man. It disgusts me. Yeah, the people who've been backing this for decades and behind all of this, you know, which includes Republicans, Democrats, lots of people that have gone through our Congress and and lots of presidents. I mean, these people are truly traitors to freedom and and to our country. These are the people that we need to focus on banishing and deporting from our country because they are the ones who've destroyed it. Correct. Just real quick story, and, and I was driving. To, I was in Panama for Panama City. So one night coming home for about 25 hours, and I, I hopped to a hostel and went to go see the canal and was speaking with our uh, Uber driver, and the Uber driver's, you know, talking about Panama City and this, that, and the other, and he goes, this building here is the Clinton Narco Trafficking Building. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, that's the Clinton Global Foundation. That's their building, but that's where the narco traffickers go to arrange whatever they arrange. And it was he was so nonchalant about it, like, oh, and there's a there's a Burger King and there's a Hooters and there's a you know it was so nonchalant. Every other country recognizes this. They have the information. It's in front of their face. We're we're fed wrong information and we don't half our more than half our country doesn't even know what I'm talking about right now. It's crazy. Yep, totally agree. Well, hey, let's keep moving on and uh, so we can wrap this up and then get on to talking with Matt about his documentary. What else do uh, did you have on the docket here? Yeah, and we got some great stuff coming up um, later this month, early next month. We are kicking off the NoCo Hemp Expo, the, the number five, the largest uh, so far. We're going to kick it off on April 5th with, with Let's Talk Hemp Film Series. We're going to be showing um, some documentaries, some shorts, lots of good film, lots of good films. You can get tickets at NoCoHempExpo.com. Uh, also have the Hemp Expo coming up, and then after that we are going west. We're going to go with the 422 out to Vegas and for a pre-420 party, a 420 party in San Diego, and then Earth Day at Balboa Park. Uh, we're big sponsors with uh, the groups out there for Earth Day, and we're going to do a live podcast uh, on Earth Day from San Diego. Yep, and then from there, after that, I think we're going to head up to San Bernardino and do Kaya Fest with the Marleys. Yep, that's right. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a great trip, about 10 days on the West Coast, again, the mid the mid season trip of the hemp road trip, but we're combining up with the four two two and uh and taking it on the road. We're super excited. Yep, gonna be a good one. All right, well let's uh let's keep on moving on and we'll take a little break here and we'll get Matt on for an interview and talk about his documentary. Sounds good, brother, looking forward to it. Next up we've got Matt Harmon, producer of a new hemp documentary and presenting sponsor of the Let's Talk Hemp film series, debuting at this year's NOCO Hemp Expo. Welcome to Let's Talk Hemp in the four two two. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, sir. Thank you for having me on. You bet, Matt. We're super excited to have you. So let's give some background to the audience. Obviously we know who you are. We're excited to have you involved with the series. Your documentary is coming out. Uh it's exciting, but um you started in real estate, is from what we understand. So, how did you go from real estate to filming a uh, hemp documentary? You know, real estate's a, a family business, and it's something that I, you know, I've been involved in, you know, since I was young. I you just sort of grew up in that real estate construction development, and uh, it's it's you know, I it was just kind of in my blood that way. I was in how it transitioned into hemp. 
I was doing uh, in 2004, we started uh, developing a, a retail center in uh, Northern California. And through that process, we completed it in 2007, at which time the entire economy just completely tanked. And having this, you know, finished retail center with very few tenants, you know, I, it was kind of a predicament. So we sit there at, you know, we had a coffee shop and a FedEx Kinko's and, and just a whole lot of empty space as sort of the world went on and, uh, and the economy was just in terrible shape. Now for me, hemp related to marijuana, related to cannabis, I knew none of this. I had never smoked any of this. I'd never used any of this. I had zero experience. I just know that at some point it was in the news that I was reading that they, they had decriminalized cannabis, marijuana, and, you know, I didn't give it a second thought because none of it applied to me. I didn't, none of it applied. But as I finished this retail center and uh, was going down, I'd have to go down and um, look for tenants and ran into a friend who was doing, you know, at a, at a, at a party down in uh, Sacramento, and he was running a, a marijuana dispensary, you know, come to find out. And I was just like, so I put all of my uh, – you know, any sort of moral bias away and just said, you know, you you think you could fit a dispensary in a high-end retail center. <laughs> and, Sounds like uh, a good idea. Yeah, it was it was an interesting, and I did I had no idea, and it was, I knew they could pay rent, because that's what everybody <laughs> talked about. They're the only ones with the money. And, uh, you just wanted a tenant to fill the space, and you didn't give a damn who it was, but marijuana could, <laughs> mar cannabis could pay, right? Cannabis could pay the rent is what you're thinking, right? Correct? That was the thinking. That was the thinking. Cannabis <laughs> could pay. But I That's had awesome. no, you know, so for, it, it gets a little bit worse to one degree, you know, my naivety towards what cannabis was because, you know, I got him to come up, look at the center. He thought it was great. Everything was very interesting. And uh, so we're sitting down for a coffee, and so I just need to get sort of, you know, the uh, due diligence out of the way, and I'm asking so. So what's my exposure here? They're going to get a coffee. They're going to get a joint. Then they're going to get in their car and die. You know, what's my exposure? I mean, my, my thought, I believe that people died from marijuana. I mean, it, it was up there with cocaine. It's public enemy number one. This was, this was a, you know, it's a problem. I didn't understand how California could even decriminalize something that would kill people in such a fashion. My, my concept of what drugs were and, and this classification system and, and how they related culturally was just, you know, it was on a different, you know, just a different playing field. I, I didn't have all the facts. And he says, well, marijuana doesn't kill anybody. And I was thinking to myself, well, well, friends, you can tell me, what, you know, how many people die from smoking marijuana? And he goes, nobody dies. And I'm just thinking to myself, something doesn't add up. Something right. doesn't add up here. People have to die. It, you know, that's you don't get to be public enemy number one in the DEA's most wanted list if people aren't dying. They have to die. And so I left that meeting and I did more due diligence. And there's an investor group. And before I even got to present to the investor group, um, the, attor the, attor the uh, attorney general had sent out all of those memos to landlords, which basically killed any any possibility for doing anything there because just the threat of the federal government coming in and seizing your asset for getting involved with cannabis was too much of a risk, you know, to ask them to take on. 
But aside from that, it basically it there was this itch in my brain I couldn't get rid of. Why why does nobody die from marijuana, and why has billions of dollars been spent criminalizing this plant if nobody dies? There's got to be more to the story. So that you know, we're 2008. You know, and a little time goes on. Uh, that might have been 2010. I start researching. Just hit the internet and just start researching. I I knew nothing about marijuana, anything. I'd never smoked it. I just didn't have any familiarity with it. So I researched it, and, and by the time I got done learning, and I'm a history fanatic, so history was good for me. And so getting into the history of this plant and really realizing what it was, what marijuana was, its relationship to hemp, its relationship to cannabis, I'm like, wow, somebody's got to do a documentary on this. And uh, I waited a few years, and nobody had done a documentary, so I'm like, well, I just couldn't get rid of this itch in my brain. So I just decided, okay, well, I have a few friends that are in the in the in the film film business, so let's let's put something together here and uh try to make something happen. So your background with having no familiarity with this plant cannabis and then with the crash and the complex and and not being able to get tenants and not being able to lease to a cannabis tenant because of the federal threat, this led you on your journey to basically do this documentary. Essentially, yes, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and that I was really bothered by the federal government threatening the landlord. You know, you're talking about a very, it's a very aggressive position to take. And, you know, coming from a real estate background, it was just, I, I just was offended by it to an extreme degree that it's like, okay, well, I've got to do more research. There's There's got to be more to this. I think the spidey sense on your back set up and said, how can the government, without making it, calling imminent domain, take over another property with, with no do, with no warrant, no cause, nothing, right? Civil forfeiture. Yeah, with those sorts of things. We start talking about that. That's a huge deal. And a lot of, and even a lot of cannabis forfeitures in the past, even such in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, were because of industrial hemp, not obviously recreational cannabis. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's a whole, but once you start to, I guess, I guess once you, once you started questioning and you got to peel away the first, second, third veil of the onion and really got to smell what was going on, you realize it was a systemic propaganda intentional issue. And there is a lot of benefits to this plant. And I think that's what looks, at least from, from the trailer, which is fantastic and your new trailer, which is going to debut at the, uh, film festival. Uh, April 5th in Fort Collins at the Lyric, that's what I think you're showing is that this plant can do a lot of different things and it's been intentionally hidden from us. Um, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to do this documentary. The the, the history, you know, I'm a history fanatic and the history that I uncovered with this was just um, it was it was incredibly, it, the plant has a phenomenally rich history that seems to have just evaporated from modern culture and uh, in lots of ways, not just as the history vanished, but the, the economic opportunity that exists with it as an agricultural commodity. Uh, just from an industrial aspect, this plant has, especially with the technology that exists today, just a massive economic opportunity. 
that during a time right now when we're when we're, the you know the United States as well as the world is looking at every kind of resource uh, to become you know to be fossil free essentially and to be green uh, and to be energy energy conscientious um, this plant you know is essentially a super crop that provides enormous opportunity in nearly every single category from energy to textiles um, to manufacturing um, to the paper industry that, you know, although we have electronic email, we still haven't gotten away from paper. So it's just it's a massive opportunity that exists with it. And so being able to tell that story and to tell it the way that I saw it, the way that I learned it, because when I when I had to dive into learning uh, about this plant, you know, it's, it's, it's like this plant for me was basically like a seed on an asteroid that landed on Earth, and it was everything was brand new. I, I knew nothing, so I was I, I was a, a clean slate from anything related to this plant. So I knew, you know, I had to learn everything from the ground up on what it is. And for me, it, I've got to get a turn over every stone to really understand what it is. So you know, researching even the word marijuana and how it sort of entered into our, our English language. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a kind of an obscure word. With It has no American, you know, the, the roots to it. Where do they come from? And how do we, how do we define this? And then being able share to with explain us. Share, this. Share, share what you found. Like, share what you found a little bit. So I'm sure part of the bigger movie. But share what you found. Where does the word marijuana come from? Well, so some of the sources, so you, you've got a, a, a word here that's sort of de- derived from um, uh, the southern United States, and there's there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of theories on this, and I'd say most of them are just theories. But you've got uh, the Chinese uh, migrating to Mexico, and I'm butchering this this translation, but in Chinese it's got this maharong, and then as it made its way uh, to Mexico, uh, they they took this uh, Chinese word and this Chinese use. Uh, you know, particularly smoking it, and they called it marijuana from Maharong. I'm, I'm butchering the Chinese um, uh, way that it's pronounced, but it's from there to Mexico, and then it's sort of made its way up into uh, South America. That's one theory. And so it's – and the other one I don't recall off the top of my head uh, that we just found. There was another theory about how it sort of morphed, and it's just been a morph. And then you have the propaganda engine, you know, of the 20s and 30s that basically grabbed this word that was obscure and not really known to the public, but just in, you know, it's sort of slang um, in that time period. They grabbed a hold of it and twisted the, the purpose, the meaning, and the idea of it in order to, you know, promote a message and a fear that would allow them to uh, – you know, accomplish their own agenda, essentially. I think of this, this is the biggest industrial sabotage of the 20th century. And so it's, uh, and that's, you know, trying to find the ultimate sabotage that exists within this, um, within what, what actually happened, because that's, you know, in one way or another, that's the way, I, and everybody has theories on what this sabotage was from paper to petroleum, you know, and, and how it sort of, sort of was created. So many rabbit holes with, with this story, I, I try not to go down too many of them too far. 
there's only so much information as I go around the country with the road trip. We start to talk about these things, and at some point, people's eyes glaze over because there's only so much information we can process at once, right? So you're right, there's all these things, there's all these steps, but I think it's maybe steps to get to understand and comprehend what's happening. And I think what one thing we'll have at NOCO is some new information about why, in addition to Anzinger and the timber industry and such, why this plant was demonized in the 20s and 30s specifically. Uh, and that's more of a global perspective at World War II reparations kind of thing. But um, neither here nor there, you're absolutely right. It was intentionally done, and that was 80 years ago, undone, you know, 1969 by the Supreme Court, and then done again by our government in the 70s. But let's let's build a little bit more on your uh, on your documentary. So how did you decide who was going to speak and be on the film and what the storyline of this film was going to be? Did you write all this yourself? I, I created just an out, a simple outline of the ideas uh, that I wanted to see conveyed in this in some sort of a story fashion so that it'd be interesting to watch. It's, you know, as you can imagine, an enormous amount of material um, in order to sort of uh, put that 90 minutes is, is been the challenge and to determine what needs to, what needs to be in and what doesn't need to be in the documentary. So it's, I, I set up with an outline in order to um, create a documentary that would sort of speak to, to what I thought were the highlights of what this plant is ultimately capable of. And, um, and is trying to find speakers, that was a, initially, it was a challenge. Documentaries, you know, you can either start with a script, which we, we didn't start with a script. We started with just an idea, an outline, and then basically dove into trying to get people to talk about it, which was uh, difficult at first because the first thing they asked is, okay, are you looking for funding? No, no, I'm not. it's self-funded. I'm just trying to get people to talk about this plant, their experience with it, and the things that are happening. So it was those people that were actually involved with this movement or with products um, or services related to this industry. Those are the people that I went after to try to get interviews with. And it was at first it was very challenging, not necessarily taken very seriously. So we, we created a small um, trailer to sort of illustrate what we were trying to accomplish. And so that we shared that with some of the uh, first interviewees uh, that we started with. We went to Eastern Europe, uh, Slovenia, to where they had a uh, – a hemp event there um, as part of their agricultural fair. And they, uh, uh, the lady that ran that show has brought people in from around the world as well as brought them via Skype to talk about this. And we started our interviews there. And then basically from NOCO that we attended last year, got another group of people that, you know, are in the industry. And finding those people was challenging. There's a few, there's a few knowns. And then there's a whole lot of unknowns that are really just, you know, because this industry doesn't exist entirely in the United States the way it could. So finding the people was uh, a little more than a Google search. Yeah, it's difficult to track down everybody. And I imagine you kind of alluded this to earlier as you're going to go through and piece this film together that's going to be 90 minutes long and you're going to have a thousand hours or more of content to go through and edit to find what that 90 minutes is going to be and how you're going to piece it together to tell this story that you've envisioned in your head. 
Exactly. Yeah. To, to, you know, to really convey the history, because for the audience, I want people to be able to watch this documentary. And I watched a lot of documentaries and they they're all very good, but they didn't hit on these these bullet points that I thought are absolutely critical for those legislators. And that's really so if I, if I had the audience, you know, I geared the audience towards the white collar legislator, the person that's going to make the rules, the questions that they're going to ask. If you get into a, a boardroom and, you, and you're going to sit down and evaluate a deal, these are the questions you ask. This is how they're broken down. That's the questions that I'm answering related to the documentary. And so it's, you know, and I, I'm, I'll usually politically that I'll go to certain events and I'll run it by some of the people just to sort of get the feel, you know, you know, I'm trying to avoid getting, you know, getting that situation where you can't see the forest through the trees through this process. And um, it's very important to sort of identify, okay, what what is it that they need to know in order to make the most educated decision, you know, for the well-being of the country, for the well-being of this industry, so that they know um, the opportunity that's being missed and lost by not having hemp as an agricultural commodity in the United States. You know, it's we're, we're talking about a plant with a trillion-dollar potential, and uh, it's just not even part of our GDP. So we right. read, we read numbers. That's 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 absolutely right. We read numbers back in I think I'm sure you know 1938, 37, 38. Popular Mechanics said it was the next one billion dollar crop, right? Which would today would be a 17 billion dollar crop in that present value, right? Um, crazy amount of economic development. Crazy amount of which plays to the Republican side, this plays to the Democrat side. It plays to both sides of the aisle. With your documentary, which is uh, super fantastic, we, we, uh, Morris, Morris, Morris and I have been uh, interviewed in it. I've seen the trailers. We've seen some awesome footage. Um, I'm super excited for, for showing some the new trailer at NOCO. But what do you want the takeaway? What's your What do you want the audience to walk away feeling, thinking? What's your takeaway from uh, from the film? We're missing out. We've got to, we've got to decriminalize this plan. We need to do it sooner than later. That's that's essentially the takeaway is just the the missed opportunity and 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 not just you know that you'll get some documentaries out there that will complain about a situation and you know I'm avoiding anything that's complaining about the situation. Everybody that was part of this sabotage is dead. They're all dead. They're not. They're they're insignificant to what is what we really need to be focusing on is that getting it getting this plant off that DEA schedule list, getting it back into the hands of American farmers so that we can start growing this crop as a massive agricultural commodity uh, for the United States and not just the United States, but around the world. And it's, uh, and just that takeaway that it's so that they know that this isn't just weed. It's not just pot. It's not just psychoactive. We're talking about, automobile parts. We're talking about, you know, revitalizing the paper industry in a way that it hasn't been done before. We're talking about green building, sustainable building, sustainable agriculture. And um, all of these things are just, they're, they're phenomenal economic opportunities. And, and the biggest one of all, I think, is energy. You know, we, you know a lot of people want to push for, you know, not relying on fossil fuels. But What's what the problem with that is that you know coal the coal industry alone is forty percent of U.S. electricity, 
And there is no single sustainable source of energy uh, that exists right now that can compensate for the, the loss of fossil fuels. And if we don't come up with something to uh, find a, a means by which we can replace fossil fuels, we're, we're going to go back to the dark ages. And, and well, it's just, it, it, we, there's no other, there's no other option. Right? There's no other, op- we have to find an option. But just to clarify something a little bit, just, 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 just real quick to clarify something. So sabotage, a lot of the stuff, a lot of you said, the old, the old information we don't know. Well, the old information about hemp, the benefits of hemp, the, 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 what hemp can do, we don't know because our grandparents or dad are, but the, the new information, the propaganda, the fact that hemp is, or cannabis in general is dangerous, the fact that it is, is driving kids to craziness, the reefer madness, is still alive and it's still alive in law enforcement and in misinformation from the government. So I just want to be clear that there are two distinct lines, like the line that never dies was the line of misinformation and lies and deceit and, and, and law and enforcement, incorrectly uh, directed enforcement. The, the part that did die was the farmers that knew how this plant worked in their soil, the, the plants that worked in their soil that have been killed by Roundup over eight years and such, right? So there's two distinct knowledge bases, and let's let's be clear, I think. One has been uh, eradicated, which is the knowledge of the plant and the, the land itself. One has been sustained, which is the misinformation and, and, and budget and, and drug enforcement administration's uh, incorrect focus on cannabis. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was talking about everybody's dead, everybody that was part of the sabotage, all of the, uh, you know, Anslinger and, and all of the people that, that basically were there in the room that wrote the memo and then burned it, essentially, they're, they're all gone. But what they did, if you really look at what they did, was if you look at the beauty of the sabotage, the, the propaganda engine that they created lasting as long as it has, you know, what my thought process has been sort of deconstructing that in order to basically help re-educate because that's propaganda is just, it's, it's horrible what it has allowed to happen. It's just massively unfortunate. And we've got to find a way to undo that. That's in, in, in my, in my mindset is, is, is designing this documentary to answer those questions. You know, it's these, uh, you know, and trying to define that and to, uh, to answer these questions, that, that when law, if a law enforcement officer was to watch it, they'd walk away with an entirely different perspective. But you, you have to be able to communicate to him, his boss, and his boss's boss, you know, all the way up and down that uh, chain. And so that's sort of been my, you know, what's uh, been part of the inspiration of this is defining, you know, answering those questions so that they know this propaganda engine that's been created. Even when the information is out there, it's still it's still going to take enormous effort in order to push it, because not just that propaganda engine created a massive money making machine, and I, I you know I guarantee that you know the DEA is not interested necessarily in uh, shutting themselves down. I mean, what their usefulness is in the future is questionable. I want to throw in something else right here since we touched on it and there's another person out there Annie Rouse who's got a podcast called Anslinger and the Untold Cannabis Conspiracy 
it's like a six part series and she's going to do another six parts and and she's doing a similar thing she's not doing a documentary but I don't know if you've interviewed her yet but she's uncovered all kinds of super fascinating information from the 20s and 30s that she's putting out on her podcast and she's one of these people that's out there really doing the the footwork and and getting to the heart of the matter and the truth and, and co- uncovering it and exposing it. That's what I want to do. That's what Rick wants to do. That's what you're doing. And it's going to take a whole army of us doing this together. Yeah. It, you know, land, air, and sea. I mean, it's it's the only way it can be done because it's, uh, you know, just trying to unravel that, that cultural propaganda engine that's sort of created and demystify what this plant actually is uh is what's really really important and so it's uh and it's it it doesn't happen overnight i mean it's it's been going on you know interesting it's been going on for more than 20 years already as people have you know perpetually tried to unwind this you know what's happened and uh and i think it's important you know just trying to answer these questions you know for me there was these history components these component these these parts within the story that sort of uh sort of explain it from an economic point of view, you know, in this, in the idea of, you know, we've, we've created a, you know, not just the propaganda engine, but what is a drug? And we have a cultural problem here with even understanding what a drug is. Coffee's a drug, Advil's a drug, um, food can be a drug. And, but it's, you know, how we've segregated what drugs are and what drugs are not, what drug is good and what's bad, it's it's been to the detriment of the American, you know, American uh, people's health, the world health. I mean, because we've completely neglected what what really we should be doing and, you know, and what we should be putting into our body and what we should not be putting into our body. And really, you know, we've created just a misinformation along those ends as well. That was for me, was one of the biggest eye-opening experiences to sort of going through this process was, you know, defining what a drug is, what a drug is not, and, and how we designed that within our culture um, at the FDA level, at the DEA level. This, this, this concept of scheduling is just massively, um, it's an unhealthy system. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the documentary. When is it going to be released? What's the plans for uh, for getting out? Is it going to be uh, online? Is it going to be through theaters, festivals? What's your what's your uh, what's your distribution options? And so the goal is just to get the documentary done. Uh, that'll be the first hurdle. The second will be film festivals, getting into you know optimistically getting into one of the top ten film festivals, um, and then going you know the distribution options. After that, you know, that everything's on the table. My end goal is to make sure that that it can be seen by as many people as absolutely possible. And so whatever method of distribution is going to allow that to occur, either theatrical, uh, you know, your iTunes, your Netflix, any of those options, you know, they're, they're all on the table. It's, it, you know, I'm leaving that the film festivals and then the rest of it, we're crossing that bridge when we get there for the most part. But it's, it's, you know, as everything evolves, you know, it's, uh, I don't have a crystal ball on it precisely, but that's the plan. We will be the first to see the new trailer, correct? Of the documentary, yes. the, the official second trailer. 
uh, at yes. the Lyric. Yeah, so we, we, we've got a nice trailer that we've put together here, and we're still working on it, getting our graphics in there, and really trying to to help push this story along. So we're, we're excited about that and, and being able to be at NOCO and uh, being able to show this trailer, and we're, we're looking forward to that. It's quite exciting. So we're going to try to do some interviews there at NOCO as well, so uh, just get people's firsthand personal experience with with uh, with in this industry. That's another thing we're looking forward to. Where can people find you on the net? You got a website that they can go get more information? Yes, you can find more information at hempdocumentary.com. Hempdocumentary.com. Thanks, Matt, for coming on. Let's talk hemp, and uh, we do appreciate you taking the time out this evening, which we'll actually broadcast during the daytime once we get it all edited down. And we certainly thank you for sponsoring the film series that we're launching at NOCO this year. And is there anything else you'd like to say before we move on? No, very exciting. Thank you guys so much for having me, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys in NOCO. Awesome. Thanks for all you're doing. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks again to Matt Harmon for joining us on Episode 10 of Let's Talk Hemp in the 422, where every day is Earth Day, and every day we have a chance to start fresh, set the intention for adding something positive to the world around us. Be sure to check out letstalkhemp.com for new and archive episodes happening every Thursday at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, and email us any questions or suggestions to the 422 at com. One last shout out before we call it good for the day. Two thumbs up to Expo West in Anaheim, California last weekend. Over 3,200 exhibitors and 100,000 people and a solid representation of hemp food and supplement companies. Until next time, folks, rock on. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.